Hi, I'm Diora, and this is Broccoli Book Club. This is the book club episode. You can read along with us, make suggestions, send in your thoughts and comments via voice note. The episode format is split into three sections. We start at the front cover where we talk about our first impressions and expectations. Then we delve into the actual book and finally end at the back where we focus on our reflections and takeaways. This month we're discussing the thought-provoking This Changes Everything by Naomi Klein. Initially, we were looking for a book that highlights issues caused by capitalism. We put it out to you, the public, via Twitter, and this text by Naomi Klein was the one chosen. It's no shock that climate change is one of the biggest, if not the biggest, global issues we're facing right now. From the horrific events of Hurricane Katrina and the Texas deep freeze, to the Australian wildfires and widespread droughts in sub-Saharan Africa, the effects of it have been more obvious as the years go on. But what can we do to tackle these issues? And can this book help us? On the surface, This Changes Everything may read as a textbook explaining how we've got to where we are with climate change. It's heavy on detail, with an assumed level of knowledge about what's happening in the world day to day. Ultimately, the book acts as a wake-up call for us to look at the real story of climate change and how the biggest global corporations and governments are far more responsible for it than they let on. While reinsurance make more money off of extreme weather conditions, or billionaires like Richard Branson use climate change initiatives to make it look like his company, Virgin, is doing something to offset its damages to the planet as it reaps in more profits, our governments are asking us to stop using plastic straws. Naomi argues that for us to ever be able to tackle climate change and fight for equality properly, we have to be aware of what's really going on behind closed doors. Joining me in today's book club are Crystal Kaibi and Renee Richardson. Crystal is a legal and business affairs manager and Renee is the founder and CEO of Broccoli Productions. What were your expectations? What did you think it was going to be like when you picked it up? So I thought my life was going to be changed because it's called This Changes Everything. And I was like, whoa, it's going to change everything. Climate change is something that is obviously very important, but I feel like it's not an area I'm well versed in. It's something that affects us all, but I feel like the way it's interpreted to us or the stories that you hear about it is very, very from a privileged place. So I kind of just like, oh, it's for them, even though I exist in the world. So of course it's not just for them, it's for us. Simple cover design. I mean, they didn't go all out. It's kind of, I guess, like the sky. I just thought this is going to change everything. I believed it. Crystal, what about you? So I kind of had no expectations from the book per se, more that I had more expectations on the conversation that we were going to have. The cover's not very inviting. It's not something that I would see on a book stand and be like, oh, yeah. But I think it also lends well to the theme in that she's talking about, obviously, climate change and minimalism and not doing the most. So I think that's why maybe they would have gone for a more 
we're not trying to attract you with jazzy stuff, but actually if you're interested in the subject, you'll pick up the book anyway, because someone would have probably told you, oh, if you want to read a good book on climate change, this is the book. So I felt like maybe that was the intention. And climate change is not, re it's not really a topic that I discuss or one that I would have imagined that I would have spent four weeks avoiding to read a book and then eventually reading it and actually getting sucked <laughs> into it. Yeah, for sure. Um, did I have huge expectations that I was going to be wowed and my whole opinion was going to change on climate change? Not really, because I think I already knew quite a lot. So I thought, well, I'm probably going to learn things just a bit more in depth. So for me, and obviously we'll go into this later, but for me, I didn't think it would have as much of an effect as it actually did. On an average day, how often do you think about climate change? So I'm trying to spend less and not buy things. And so I'm doing that because of consumerism and climate change. I feel like I'm pretty good. I recycle, you know, I walk some places. Don't have a gas guzzler. Don't drive a four by four in the city. You know, I try to be sensible. So in that sense, I feel like I'm doing my little piece. Oh God, I feel horrible. I drive a gas guzzler. I don't recycle, but that's because we don't actually have recycling facilities. Or if I do, I try my best to like keep the box and take it to my mum's house and recycle it at my mum's house. I mean, I drink oat milk. I guess that's good for the environment. I heard that's better than almond milk. I have travelled less on a plane, but that's probably not my own choice. That's the pandemic. Is that in the pandemic? It's the pandemic. <laughs> this is bad. I don't. I don't think about it that much. And yeah, this book has really made me feel like, oh, okay, let's be better, do better. But as I said, I've changed almond milk to oat milk. I think I'm doing my bit. Well, that, that yeah. is something. That's something. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think that's really interesting, isn't it? Because, and I, and I want to get into this when we talk about the actual book, but I feel like there is so much onus on us to do everything. And we start feeling this shame and guilt to the point where we're like, then don't end up doing anything. But actually, it's not just us. Like, I think definitely it is down to us to try and make those individual choices if we can. But also it's about putting pressure on like wider, you know, organizations and wider powers because we don't fundamentally control the oil companies and the and the gas companies are drilling. So don't feel too guilty is what I'll say. Let's delve into the book itself. So this was a big and heavy book and the font was very small, may I add. What did you think? What were your initial thoughts? So I was really annoyed at the small font because I'm like do you know what if you write an 800 page book make it an 800 page book <laughs> don't squeeze it into 500 because you've made the font very very small it's like just just be honest up front that was annoying to me <laughs> but the opening like I was really unaware of the you know this is our last decade to make changes that I was like oh my god why do people not know this like should we be doing stuff I literally went into work the next day after I read that section I was like hey guys, climate change, like, why aren't we doing anything about it? So in that sense, I was really excited because I, again, I was still optimistic. I was like, yes, mm -hmm. naively. But what happened after? Um, I hated the book. It was awful. It was an unenjoyable read. 
I went past the first section and then every 15 minutes when I remembered I was reading it, I was like, damn you book. Like I hated every minute of it. She was very, very lasered in one area and completely missed the opportunity to get people to connect with what she was fighting for. I shouldn't need a climate degree to read the book. She's so one track minded and I just think I hated it. The end. <laughs> That's the end. That's the end of that episode then. All right. Thank you everyone for listening to Broccoli Book Club. This is where we're going to end. Um, Crystal, I'm really intrigued to see what your opinions were. I'm going to have to confess to something. It took me like a week when I first got the book to even get past the introduction because I just felt like it was too dense of even the way to start a book because it doesn't get lighter. As it goes along. And so I think if she was going to try and lure someone like me in who isn't really a big reader anyway, such a dense introduction was so much for me that it actually stopped me from reading the book in chronological order and I just kind of skipped around. So I kind of looked at the content and said, well, what are the things I'm actually interested in reading first? Go to that, read it, come back. Maybe if I want to know the nitty gritty details of climate change and the issues that are happening. This would actually be quite a good book for it because she does really go into detail. Did I want that? Personally, I was okay with it. I think a lot of people might not want that if this is like, you know, the first book they read on climate change, it might be a bit too heavy. But I do think it's probably a really great resource if you're writing a paper or you're trying to look for case studies and she does do a lot of that work so I do think we need to give her some credit for that and I did find her writing I didn't find it inaccessible it was heavy but it wasn't inaccessible but I know what you mean I felt like there were some points where I just felt like did this need to be a 400 page but could you have gotten away with 200 I think so one thing that Naomi does well is create this undeniable link between climate change and unregulated capitalism. Were these things that you saw so closely related before? I think that's one thing that I, I did appreciate about the book. Obviously, I understood there was a link, but I didn't appreciate it to the level that I now appreciate now that I've read the book because of the granular detail, the research that she's done, the way that she also linked it to, like, political ideology. And I think that's where I was like, oh, okay, that's where I've missed the step, right? Because I always understood about political ideology when it came to other social issues, right? So women's rights, uh, pro-life, pro-choice, big government, small government, taxation. I always linked political ideology to that, and I never really made the link to climate change. I think it's interesting because I think as a black person, I always saw climate change as something that only white people were interested in. Just coming from like the households that I come from. Like, you know, as black people, we've always recycled plastic bags. But it wasn't because we cared about the environment. It's because your mum wanted another bin when you run out of bin bags, right? So our form of kind of recycling at home wasn't necessarily to save the earth. It was to save money. And it was to make sure that there was always a bag or something. Or, you know, we recycled Tupperware boxes. But that's because, again, your mum doesn't want to buy Tupperware. So growing up, I always just saw it as a, quote unquote, white man's issue or struggle. Or, And I don't mean it struggles in the, the only thing that affects them. But as in that, that's the only 
topic that I saw white people always really fight for growing up, me personally, you know. When I read the book, I was like, oh, okay, so it's interesting to know that even on that side, there's still division, right? So depending on whether you're conservative or liberal, your view on climate change also changes. So it was really interesting. You know, I understand a lot of this book is based on the American political view and the American view on capitalism, which is obviously the view that we as a world have been indoctrinated to understand and believe. So, you know, small government, low regulation, big profits, low taxation. And so now I can actually understand that link, that the more individualistic you are when it comes to your view in capitalism and saying that, you know, I want to make as much money as possible and I don't care what I need to destroy, who I need to destroy, who who I need to exploit to get there. And I think, yeah, I can see that with the environment. I can see that with climate change. And, and, and you know, it's, it's the same in terms of we don't really care what we're doing, who we're harming to get get the dividends out to our investors. So it was interesting and I really liked how she did link it to political ideology. I do like the facts and figures that she gave us early on in terms of the percentages of people who were liberal. She gave us a fact about even geography mattered about your view on climate change. If you were in a city or a town where drilling was kind of the main economic activity. I think she gave an example of somewhere in Florida or in somewhere in Texas and in Canada, where she was saying, you know, they're the main activities drilling. That's where they get most of their GDP and, and the kind of their economic activities based on that. So regardless of whether you're liberal or conservative, you're kind of more of a climate denier compared to places where their economic activity isn't related to drilling or extraction or petrochemical or the use of fossil fuels. So people are a little bit more liberal, they're a little bit more open about their views. So that was also interesting to read and understand. Mm-hmm. Mm. And for me, yeah, it's I had an idea, but I like how she went into the like, you know, detail of how it's related. And I liked how she went into detail with the links between capitalism and just how it has been politicized in, yeah, like you're liberal, oh, you believe in climate change. You're not, you're like climate change is fake and I think that is obviously silly but it is the world we live in now Mm -hmm. so I did like that she used those comparisons or examples so how do you feel about the fact that the general public have been consistently told that our day-to-day usage of plastic is the reason you know why there's a climate emergency so we'll see pictures of turtles with straws stuck on them and images of like horrible pollution levels in big cities or melting ice caps But this book really makes a point about how our daily consumer habits have an effect on climate change. But the major contributors are energy companies and multinational businesses. Where do you think the owner should lie on who is responsible for climate change? I do think it's all of us still. Because I've been to Bali and Indonesia and I've seen the piles of our plastic there. Like it's under, you can't unsee it that it was a beautiful island and it's got our plastic. And whether we're like, yeah, but it's not the main problem, it's still part of the problem. So it's like, yes, does the paper straw change? It's not necessarily the straw thing because it's like, you know, if you buy fish or something and, and the tray part is recyclable, but the film isn't, that happens all the time. So you know you need to make recyclable plastic, but you're still not. 
So all of that, and it's not just changing a straw to a paper straw, it's literally everything we buy covered in plastic. That is a problem, but it's also, I still need to heat my house. There was still a clear gap, which is why they were trying to do the other problems where they try and you know shoot something into the sky to cool it down, um, which I've seen Snowpiercer. We all saw how that went. But it still is on all of us, which kind of shows that nothing will probably happen because people like to make money. And we're kind of seeing that with how the pandemic is being treated around the world. Money over anything else. Crystal, what did you think after reading the book? Did you feel like the onus is on the individual or actually these big companies that need to change up? Yeah, I think it's interesting because, as I said earlier, there's always been that propaganda that it's up to us, right? It's up to, and, but it is a very interesting that the message is always top down to us because I think the assumption is always that because there's more individuals, as in there's 7 billion of us, if we all decided to do small changes that would equal big change, which I agree I definitely do agree. But then I think that if you actually look at the counteracting activity is our kind of collective effort can be undone by one company's everyday activity, right? You know, one company's fracking or one company's drilling or doing this. So I think it's always interesting that the individual that's easier to control through billboards or through tv ads or whatever is the person that most of the onus is born i've noticed that lots of companies nowadays are trying to look like they're more green and they're more environmentally friendly and then they'll push you products that seem more green and more environmentally friendly and so you know there was a few years ago when H&M fast fashion brands suddenly were like we now have a collection that's sustainable yet we're still going to be making fast fashion at the same time and that's just another way for companies to sort of it's called greenwashing you know they'll basically pretend to be more environmentally friendly and actually their goal is to just sell you more stuff and I think that's why her point about capitalism is so important because I think a capitalist world creates societies that are very individualistic then it feels like we can only solve these issues by ourselves and I think the main message I took away from this book was that we do need to actually become more collective in the way that we fight this. I really enjoyed some of the examples that she gave when people came together and, you know, basically protested against different like fracking happening all over the world and actually how sometimes they won. I just quickly wanted to also mention that Naomi goes in on Richard Branson. She absolutely hates him and Virgin. And as she writes in the book, he pledged to commit three billion pounds to develop biofuel and improve the company's attitudes to climate change. Yet he went back on his promise and possibly gained more media attention from you know, the publicity of promoting his Virgin Earth challenge. And the company's profits also increased in that time. What are your thoughts on his broken promises? You know, were you surprised? And do you think the billionaires will save us? The billionaires won't save us. <laughs> kind of like similar to what Elon Musk did, you know, when he Elon Musk was, I'm going to take Bitcoin. I'm not going to take Bitcoin because the mining is using too much energy. And then people are like, yeah, but how do you make the Tesla batteries? 
<laughs> Which is again capitalism, isn't it? It's like buy a Tesla, it's good for the environment. Is it? Is it good for the environment? So Richard Branson, I guess he felt the pressure to do that competition. His whole pledge was to spend that three billion, but it was to keep the planes in the sky and the planes were causing the trouble. So it was never gonna be for the betterment of the environment. It was it was always a PR thing designed to make Virgin seem better exactly the way Tesla did. Yeah, and I think that's a really great point because I think what she consistently keeps talking about in this book is that all of these big companies that are pledging to do all these different things for the climate, they're just trying to offset the damage they're causing. They're not saying we're going to reverse it or we're going to actually really work towards reducing it they're saying we're going to do this thing at the same time we're going to fund these crazy ideas to try and cover the earth in volcanic dust to stop you know the sun (laughs) coming through our atmosphere over actually being like hang on like this is the damage we're doing is what's causing this it's like cognitive dissonance they're acting as though climate change has got nothing to do with these huge companies that they're running and various levels of they're just unethical actions that contribute to that. Crystal, what do you think? I think I'm even way more cynical than both of you are um, when it comes to this. I don't think billionaires do this to try to offset the damage that they've done. I think that they do these pledges to offset their tax bill. Because I'm sure if you can write off a lot of these things as a charitable donation or whatever, that just helps a whole bunch of your tax bill, right? If you are in the business of a business that is a great pollutant... I don't really see how you're going to have cognitive dissonance. If you don't want to pollute, you just won't. You'd leave that and do something else. So do I believe that these pledges are even to try and offset it? No, I don't. On page 107, there's also reference about the floods that occurred in the UK in 2013. So we know that the people who suffered the most were the working class communities in those areas. And many of the preventive measures to stop the floods were actually cut due to austerity imposed by the Conservative government. And it feels like there's a parallel situation happening right now with the current pandemic response. And we're having to spend a lot of money after the major catastrophe happens, instead of investing into things that could stop it from happening in the first place. How frustrating do you find this? How frustrating did you find reading these examples and just being like, oh my God, this is exactly what's happening right now? I was extremely frustrated because I think the only thing that we're very preemptive about is defence, right? And wars. So you will see, you know, our government spending billions a year. None of that preemptiveness when it comes to anything else right so this isn't the first kind of virus or something that we've lived in there was still SARS there was still MERS there was Ebola which you know arguably didn't hit us directly but there's always been signs in in the past couple of decades that something like this could happen and it wouldn't be so far-fetched you know I'm not I'm not a politician I didn't go to Oxford I didn't study PPE so maybe they teach them something there that they don't teach me but I'm not that, and I would still be able to tell you that that has safety measures, that has, you know, certain procedures in place. I don't understand how a government would not have certain procedures in place because we're an island. (laughs) We're not landlocked. We are an island. So with rising sea levels, and I, I grew up in East London, right on the edge of the Thames. And you saw that every year. Like I lived in, I live in North Woolwich, so I kind of border Woolwich and North Woolwich and the Thames is in the middle. And you can see, you can see the devastation that one pollution causes to the Thames and two, just rising sea levels. 
it doesn't take rocket science to understand. I'm not frustrated because I'm just like, we've been here. People saw the floods, right? And they saw how badly it was handled. They saw austerity. They saw the troubles. And then people then voted again for them. So I'm like, do you know what? Sometimes my nan used to say, if you cannot hear, you must feel. We are currently feeling these bad decisions. We are feeling it with Brexit. We're feeling it with how the plague is being handled. We're feeling it with being semi-trapped here <laughs> on this island, plague island. So it's like people continue to vote. There was even a vote, an election in this pandemic and people again voted for them. People want this. So am I voted for it? No. <laughs> but that's how democracy works, right? I'm not voting for it, but I have got to deal with the consequences. There also seems to be a thread between people thinking that they can control nature and the consequences that brings. So Naomi writes about the English Lord Chancellor Francis Bacon, who was the father of extractivism, as she calls him. And she brings us up all the way into the modern world where we think we can just block out the sun or carry out other dangerous experiments to undo that the harm we've caused. Do you think that this is the issue, that humans genuinely think they can somehow outsmart the earth? Because there's always this talk about technology will save us, technology will save us, we're just so smart that we'll be able to get there in time. But is that the issue? Humans are notoriously egotistical. We think we're the only life. We think we're, no matter how big space is, we think we're, this is one earth that is, you know, just here. We just got it together. We think that we're the smartest animals on earth. We think that we can just get rid of everything and then we'll just, I don't know, make some kind of bubble where we'd breathe that oxygen if you get rid of all the trees. I don't know. But we just keep going and going and going because as humans, main thing is we need to make money. We need to have things. Humans need to be at the top. And so it's an arrogance that humans have. And I think that will never, that's just in us. So they'll be like, yeah, let's shoot this thing to cover the sun. <laughs> that, that's the solution. That's so interesting. I don't, I don't know if I like 100% agree with that. It's um, that it's natural for humans to be so greedy and that we're just inherently like this. I genuinely believe that it is the society that we live in that also like indoctrinates us and perpetuates these messages of more more and more like I because if you think about it also throughout history there have been plenty of times and right now there are so many you know communities that aren't as capitalistic <laughs> as our Western yeah but you're looking at money so if you look through the history of humans there has always been a hierarchy someone so not necessarily do you need a new outfit no <laughs> But did you need the biggest fish? Probably. Did you need the biggest boar? Did you need the biggest campsite? Did you make the biggest fire? It's in us. It is human nature. It's just that now we're in a society where it's money. Your point of contention, DRA, is that you say that human beings are not naturally, would you say naturally selfish? I feel like we don't know, but I think there is this idea that humans are inherently selfish and having read... Rutger Bregman's Humankind. If you are a loyal Broccoli Book Club listener, you'll know we read this a few months ago. Then he makes a really actually good argument that this is not necessarily the case and that we might actually be inherently good, inherently social and wanting to look out for each other. So yeah, That's, that's an interesting take because I think I'll flip it and say uh, the book Leviathan will tell you otherwise. 
So that book will actually tell you that human beings are in a constant state of war, right? In our natural stripped-down form, we are innately selfish and we're in a constant state of war, fighting for, as Renee was saying, fighting for resources. And the book also tells you that actually that fight for resources can be as simple, as primal as if I need a new kidney, I have every right to pin Renee down and grab hers because I need it. Catalogue shows us everything that we need to know that human beings are innately selfish. For your life goal of accumulating wealth and resources, you are willing to overwork your people, not pay taxes, extract, do whatever you can. And that must be the true sign of selfishness. Let's just talk about this was end of the book. How did you feel about her comparisons to oppression of owning slaves and solving climate change in her conclusion? So the fight to liberate slaves and the fight against climate change. As someone who's just made a slavery podcast, you know, very well versed in slavery <laughs> and abolition, she's coming from an extremely privileged position where she acted like abolition was for the benefit of the slaves and it wasn't so if you are comparing it to climate change it would be the equivalent of stopping let's say drilling for oil and then you start fracking for gas because it's natural that's the equivalent of comparing slavery and abolition to climate change because it wasn't for the benefit of the slave. How can we exploit this resource in a different way? Owning slaves was not efficient because they are people and they had to do the work. So if you take away the people and moving them across the Atlantic and all these different places, hey, I, I can just go and take the Congo. Why am I bothering to move the people? I can just take that land. So it's like they just exploited the land in a different way. So that comparison was a stupid one because it is literally like comparing drilling oil to then going, do you know what? Let's frack instead because at least the gas is natural. I think that's a really excellent point because when I read it and I did feel really uncomfortable because I was just like, oh, like, wh why did you have to say this? Like, you could have just left it. You made your point. You don't have to compare it to other struggles. But then equally, I was like, Maybe what she's trying to say is that, you know, because people came together and like all these things happened when people came together and protested and all these rights were won. She's trying to make a comparison that we need to do the same with climate change. And she does mention it. She does mention it that this is not a perfect comparison because, you know, slavery, even though it was like technically abolished, still the persecution of black people when we're talking about in America, for example, continues and you have a prison industrial complex and you have basically all the issues that have derived from that time. So, yeah, I thought that comparison was really off and I just wish she didn't make it. What about you, Crystal? I'm not mad at the comparison after I read it. <laughs> I think the first sentence, I was like, oh, girl, where are you going with this comparison? And I kind of totally agree with Renee's point in terms of making the comparison was a bit odd because people just found other ways to get around the owning of people, which I just think that's what people are going to do with climate change. So she herself qualified her own comparison, which is what I appreciated, because otherwise just leaving it unqualified or not even 
questioning her own comparison would have seemed a bit stupid to me, for lack of a better word. So I do appreciate that she's saying, yes, you know, it's not exactly the same, but X, Y, and Z. But that's also kind of the reason why I kind of said in the beginning that I always found climate change, quote unquote, white people's issue or white people's struggle. Yeah, for me, that was the nail on the head. I was like, okay, this is a book for the privileged. This book is directly for the 1%. And someone in the 1% would be like, yeah, well, you know, climate change is just like slavery because of X, Y, Z. Joe, who would never say that? A descendant of a slave? Yes, she can research. Good for her. Awesome. She does not know how to make climate change relatable or how to put it at the forefront and how to make it an issue for everyone, which is what it is. So in that terms, I hate it, she failed, but good research. I just think climate change needs to become accessible because we need everyone to care about it. Anyone who's in that field, I'm not in the field of climate change, but anyone who's in that field, that should be their biggest priority because we all need to care. Yeah, all right. Has this book made you feel hopeful about the future and the way we will tackle climate change or has it made you feel even more doubtful? It's made me feel like I might have look, less than 30 years to live because yeah. it seems like there won't be an Earth. Yeah, I agree because I've always looked at it as the Earth's extinction to be like maybe 100 years. <laughs> and now I'm like, oh shit, blah, I might be 60. But um, it definitely has made me look at it from another point of view. So we've thoroughly discussed This Changes Everything and have reached the back cover. I asked Frené and Crystal what kind of steps they're going to take after everything they've learned from this book. I feel like I'm already pretty good, but I am going to try and make some climate content, educate myself. How can I educate the world? That's, that's on my list now. I love how you're basically channeling your frustration of this book into something good. How most of my shows get made, to be honest. And what about you, Crystal? Do you think you will be changing anything on an individual level after this book? I mean, I'm gagging for a flight right now, so... (laughs) My carbon footprint is going to go through the roof. Um, No, definitely, I think I need to make more of an effort to recycle. I think Renee raised really good points about plastic and plastic use and single-use plastic, and, and I need to be more aware and conscious of, you know, buying produce that isn't kind of wrapped up in single-use plastic but yeah I definitely will try so what about me will I change anything well actually after the last book that we read on broccoli book club which was called eating animals I'd gone vegetarian and after this book I have now joined the green party because I was so horrified and (laughs) I was just like, you know what? Let me just give them a go. Let me just give them a go. I feel like I already, on an individual level, I try, I really try to do the things I can. But, you know, and it's, as you mentioned, Crystal, it's it's about bottom up. Like, how do we put pressure on bigger you know organizations to do what's better for the planet and I feel like my consumer choices might make a fraction of a difference but I want to learn about what else I can do that's a bit bigger and you know about it's about coming together with like-minded people and fighting for whether that's saving you know your a big tree in your local area or going and throwing paint at a big you know oil company's building 
<laughs> um, so yeah, that's that's kind of why I did. Got criminal damage. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, we'll see what happens. You know, yeah. the conversation made the book worth. Yeah, the conversation. Actually, I was looking forward to the conversation, and that's what pushed me having. Yeah, me to too. To read the book because I actually was like, oh, excited to hear what the other ladies are going to say. So I definitely would say if I was going to recommend the book to someone, I would say do a book club and, and be prepared to talk about the issues. Thanks to Crystal and Renee for contributing to this episode. And thank you for listening to Broccoli Book Club. In next month's book club, we'll be discussing Clearing the Plains by James Dashuk. So get reading now and send in your thoughts and comments via voice note to voicenote at broccolicontent.com. Don't forget to share the podcast and join the conversation using the hashtag Broccoli Book Club. And if you liked what you heard, why not subscribe and leave a review on your favourite podcast app? I've been your host, Diora, and you can find me on Twitter at the Diora. Broccoli Book Club is produced by Jarja Mohammed, assistant produced by Rory Boyle, executive produced by Renee Richardson, and mixed by Rob Fincham. This is a Broccoli Production.